bullying program may contain traces of irony, sarcasm, satire, parody, mockery, banter, caricature, and nuts. The opinions expressed are almost certainly not shared by self-appointed officials, dictatorial wowsers. If you are dangerously irony deficient or allergic to mockery of the self-important and corrupt, then get a life. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, time to get a life, or at least to stand up for all life here on Mother Earth, our one and only place in the universe where life exists, to the best of our knowledge anyway. And that's good enough for me. So here I am again, Sean O'Shaughnessy, to present to you the Environmental As Anything show. Thank you for joining me today. It's always a pleasure to have your company. Uh, Whatever your religious background or beliefs, it's always lovely to get together with family and friends and celebrate the summer solstice and uh, the the silly season that goes around it. So uh, let's have a season of peace and justice for all. Uh, if we can. So I should say, uh, in uh, f- on the respects for culture and tradition, of course we live, work and play on stolen land. I am here on the lands of the Widjibal Wyabal people and say thank you to them for their forbearance uh, with the terrible depredations of colonialism. And... Uh, uh, hopes for a better future for us all together and sorry uh, for the mess and respects to elders past, present and emerging. This is and will always be Aboriginal land. So again, of course, as always, a big show for Environmental as Anything this week. We have got, uh, oh, I've got a, a list of interviews coming up. I've got uh, uh, my good friend and colleague, George Pick. He's going to come in and talk to us about uh, some of the, uh, the energy issues uh, towards the, uh, on, the, on the road to the transition to renewable prosperity. And later on in the show, uh, I'll be talking to Tim Buckley, who's uh, from the uh, uh, Climate, Energy and Finance think tank, and uh, talking about his take on uh, the COP28 and other uh, issues to do with energy uh, and uh, related uh, matters. So that'll be a big, big focus on energy for the show. Also, I've got uh, Bob Brown Foundation. Scott Jordan is the Tarkine campaigner for the Bob Brown Foundation. And uh, he's going to, I had a chat with him yesterday uh, about what's going on in the Tarkine. And there's uh, five days of direct action there defending the the Tarkine uh, this week and an ongoing commitment from a, a growing community of people who are demanding an end to native forest logging in Tasmania and across Australia. So I'll be listening in to that interview uh, soon. And uh, then also from Western Australia, I've got uh, Maz, who locked on to a four-wheel drive car in the street in Perth on Monday uh, and for the, uh, for the Disrupt Burrup Hub movement. We've had... Uh, interviews before with uh, members from Disrupt Burrup Hub explaining their campaign to us. Well, uh, Maz uh, yeah, spoke to me this morning, so fresh off the uh, the, the presses, uh, spoke to Maz this morning from WA. Bit of a time difference there, so we had to sort of shunt the uh, interview around a bit to fit around Maz's work. He's a, a, uh, a veterinarian, actually. But anyway, so we'll be uh, talking to him about that action and the Disrupt Burrup Hub movement. But very excited, uh, in particular, today to have a live interview with Helen from the Knitting Nanas in Sydney, who recently had a, a court win in the uh, the Australian High Court 
where they uh, challenged the uh, repressive uh, uh, laws preventing uh, protest here in New South Wales. And uh, so I'm going to have Helen on to chat to us uh, soon-ish in the show, around three-ish, and um, also talking to Sue Higginson about uh, the legal issues that are uh, that are you know involved in that case, and a, a very significant win for us all for freedom of speech and assembly and association and the right to speak truth to power uh, being upheld by the High Court of Australia, which is a marvellous. Uh, 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 incident for us all, an outbreak of justice. Uh, let's hope it is not isolated. And uh, right now in the studio with me is our local pundit on matters to do with energy and the transition to renewable prosperity, George Pick. Thanks for joining us, George. Pleasure, Sean. I'm glad to be here amidst some fairly violent storms around the studio at the moment. Yeah, there's a bit of a uh, there. There is a bad storm going on. There's also some problem with your levels on your mic. Can I just get you to try talking into it again? Sorry. How's that? Is that any clearer? Yeah, no, it's okay. It's good. That's good. I just have to keep the levels up on okay, it. Okay, all right. To be a little I bit, a little bit odd. Odd. Uh, this is an odd studio. We're in the studio B. Okay, and that's uh, good. and it's just uh, everything's a little bit less than uh, optimal in here, but we're getting it all together. That's so okay. we've got some great uh, big. It's been a big, big week for energy and climate, hasn't yeah, it? I yeah, mean, it's we've been just a big one. Yeah, yeah. We wrapped just, up the cop. The cop. Yep. Some people would call it the cop out, but um, <laughs> others would um, put a, a, a much more optimistic view on it. So I've got a couple of articles which we might go through, and, right. and they pretty well summarise most of um, what goes on. Perhaps. Um, some of the listeners know already some of the information, but I think it's worthwhile trying to um, form some form of a conclusion and the direction in which we, mm. we might be heading. So Where to from here? Yeah, that's right. So um, essentially the article is from The Guardian. It was on the 14th of December a couple of days ago, and it's called The Age of Fossil Fuels Will End. Australia's Chris Bowen hails COP28 agreement. So, so Chris Bowen, who's the Minister for Climate Energy as well, says the COP28 sent a clear message that our future is in clean energy and the age of fossil fuels will end. However, he did acknowledge that it didn't satisfy many countries. Um, Nearly 200 countries agreed to to the deal and on the positive side, the first time all the nations um, have agreed to mentioned the word fossil fuels and the and the yeah. term used was transition away from fossil fuels they weren't they, they couldn't bring themselves to use the word phase out or even phase down but bowen put a, a big uh, uh, interpretation on it he spun it really well he said it sends a signal to the world's markets investors and businesses that this is the direction of travel for countries around the world despite the urging of 130 nations cop 28 agreement didn't include a phase out or, or, a, or a phase withdrawal, whatever. Um, and it was due to the, as we know, the Saudi Arabians and the OPEC group. Mm-hmm. And uh, so eventually it was a transition away from fossil fuels in energy systems in a just, orderly and equitable manner mm-hmm. to achieve net zero by 2050, and I like this one, in keeping with the science. 
<laughs> and, uh, you know, if they were in keeping with the science, it would be far more radical than that. Mm. But that was mm. the official statement that came out of, out of the text. Um, countries from the Global South and climate just, justice advocates said it was well short of what was really needed. Well, it seems to be uh, like it's hopefully a high watermark for that um, for the fossil fuel in, fossil fuel influence over the COP process. It seems that if they've got uh, a, a a fossil fuel executive, a CEO as the uh, the the, uh, the president of the COP, and it's being held in one of the world's biggest fossil fuel countries, yes. and they still can't stop the words fossil fuels yeah. being uh, yeah. included in the final text, despite all of their efforts, it's yeah. uh, it's a yeah. good sign. There were seventy percent of countries that actually voted for a phase out. For for the phrase phase out of yeah there was over a hundred over a hundred wanted uh, the more meaningful statement mm. but at least they got the transition away from fossil fuels mm. so mm. it was a compromise mm. but Australia's position is quite hypocritical and it's really uh, kind of annoying and irritating the way Bowen carries on in that he's yes he, he's against fossil fuels um, in our country in other words he advocates the removal of fossil fuels as far as the usage by within the Australian economy by which he means dig them up and ship them somewhere else doesn't that's he? right <laughs> but he totally ignores and won't engage in any conversation about us um, doing anything about the export of the fossil fuel mm. industry and this is where he's quite quite hypocritical and together with the fact that those exports when they're burnt they contribute to a, a massive for our country five percent of global co2 emissions which is really when you think about it australia is a tiny country that's mm. one out of 25 percent that's a lot mm. so we've got a lot to answer for uh, but here are the key points to come out of the out of the deal um, global heating is supposedly limited to 1.5 degrees centigrade but that requires a 43 percent emissions cut um, throughout globally by 2030 and 60% by 2035, but that's on 2019 levels. Mm. Now, Australia's actually a little bit behind the ball on that, even on that figure, but that's what they're looking at. Now, looking at it from where we are now, that seems somewhat unlikely, but there's more to, the, more to say. Um, the positive, one of the positives that came out of the, the conference was that they intend to increase global renewable energies by a factor of three. It's going to be tripled. Yep. And energy efficiencies, improvements, they expect to double by 2030 as well. So mm. that's a good move mm. to try and improve the way energy is utilised. They're significant. They will, they will, though both of those measures will make a significant impact yep. on, the, on the increase in the, uh, the, the climate gases. Yep. But they won't, won't ramp it back to, 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 to a safe level by themselves. No, yeah. no, yeah. no. And there wasn't much progress made on climate adaptation. Uh, there was very little financing in that. But at the beginning of the conference, they did announce that a loss and damage fund mm. was going to be um, put forward for the more vulnerable countries. But it's a pitiful amount. As yeah. we know, it's only in the hundreds of millions and it, it's uh, not going to go very to far. Pushing yeah. towards 700 yeah. million the last time I heard anything about yeah. it. And it needs they, a, a, a billion dollars. If they got to a billion dollars, it would still be, uh, you know... What, 99 billion uh, short. Yeah, yeah. They're still, like, they're still spending 11 trillion on, on subsidies for fossil yeah. fuels. Yeah, so, yeah. So yeah. A, yeah it's a know, joke. Yeah. I, I, I but it's uh, a significant yeah. step again in, the, in that it's, it creates it's, the it's fund which has been being argued about. And that's right. And was scotched at the last meeting, at last cop in Egypt so again a, a yep. small step in the right direction they're incremental moves and they're heading in the right direction and I think that's probably the best way of putting it forward of um, summarising the whole conference um, commitments however are not binding that's mm. the other thing mm. um, and there are some I might just summarise some of the comments by various analysts yep. for example the climate analog 
an analytics um, Bill Hare, he's well known in the environmental movement, said the agreement was a mixed bag. He said for the first time there was a move away, a mention was made of a, of a move from away from fossil fuels, but it let other parts of the text are attempting to keep fossil fuels relevant in the transition. So it's two-faced as we know. Greenpeace said the final text made some progress but didn't go far enough. Uh, particularly they didn't address the expansion of the fossil fuel industry in Australia. Mm. Um, and then finally, I'll just go to the Greens leader, Adam Band, called the deal a weak word salad <laughs> <laughs> and said Australia couldn't wait for other countries before banning new coal and gas extraction. Mm. So that's the end of that article. And it's, it sort of gives you a bit of a feel for the, the two-sidedness mm. of it all, that there's an attempt in one area. But I'm just going to dig in a little bit deeper into some of these elements um, with the second article um, before we finish up on the, the summary of COP28. And it's an article from the ABC by Daniel Mercier, uh, also on the 14th, two days ago. And it is, as global, as global climate summit COP28 wraps up, its improbable fossil fuel deal is seen by many as a huge step forward. Mm. Well, I'm beginning to think that uh, as we consider it more and more I think there's less and less people thinking that it's a huge step mm. but initially there was some excitement about some of the elements there was chatter for example there was chatter of a landmark deal to, to phase out fossil fuels um, a couple of days before the end of the conference and you probably remember and yep. then there was a fight back by Saudi Arabia mm. now if you look at Saudi Arabia and you look at their oil revenue they get two-thirds of their income from fossil fuels mm number one mm. the uae gets half of their half of government income comes from fossil fuel wow. from their exports oil yep. and gas and and so when you when you view it that way it highlights some of the truths in global warming in the global warming debate and i think this is important is and i want to sort of get to this point and that is that these countries invariably are going to act in their own interests. There's no question. Australia's doing that. Mm. You know, that mm. the appealing to the problems with the climate is not going to override what they see as Australia's interests. That's the first thing. Um, and if you look at Saudi Arabia, and this article uh, responded to this, it, it was simply saying that it costs them as little as $5 a barrel to dig it out of mm. the, the ground, and they, they're selling it for more than $70 a barrel. Mm. Mm. Now, that, that speaks for itself. And they've got the most to lose, obviously, um, from the, the fading away of the fossil fuel age. Mm. And so it's unlikely they're going to give it up easily. Um, and so um, the agreement they got was sort of a, a slight compromise. But finally, a, another view has become clear in Dubai. And I've been thinking of this for some time. Rather than wait for governments and corporations to phase out fossil fuels, massive renewable energy projects must and are being made at the moment. And they will make the, um, those fuels, the fossil fuels, redundant. Mm. They'll make them unnecessary because they'll be cheaper, first of all, um, as well as being very um, helpful for the planet, of course. And, you know, when you look at most industrial transformations, you'll find that that's actually what happens, that mm. uh, a, a technology comes in and if it's cheaper, it's more efficient, it will replace it. And that's, I think that's what we've got to focus on. And, mm. you know, in this uh, constant frustration of not being heard, you could say, by the fossil fuel entities and you bang yourself against the, the brick wall, 
I, I think that's a good approach to take is mm. to just simply say, well, look, we're not going to focus on that now. Let's really go for uh, the alternative positions and, th and virtually run them out of town over because they won't be able to sell their product. Yeah, well, there's certainly a, a, a strength in that, in that you know that that's uh, that's likely to be a winning strategy in the long run. That those that those uh, those renewable energies are, are going to replace. They are cheaper and and more, and cleaner and more reliable. Uh, but of course, unfortunately, we can't afford to uh, to wait for the fossil fuels just to, to, to curl up and die well, of their own accord. Well, uh, we must have that's regulation. That's right. But I, I think that's where you know being realistic at the moment. I think if we can massively increase and there are some signs there are signs that that's happening already um I'll i can quote some figures here first of all in 2022 at the end of 2022 5.5 percent of global electricity it's not a big figure i know came from solar and wind um, but it did start from a low base mm. but if you include hydro and nuclear that comes to about 20 percent in mm. other words 80 percent of energy is essentially from fossil fuels now there is an acceleration going on at the moment for example China is producing an enormous amount this year of 230 gigawatts mm. of alternative of renewables. I mean, it's a huge, massive amount. I mm. mean, Australia's electricity use averages about 50 uh, nationwide, 50 gigawatts. So yeah. it's yeah. almost five times our whole national yeah, consumption yeah. So power it, altogether. These these a huge, a huge amount going on, and so. In a way, I think the um, fossil fuel industry is realising this, despite all the hype, despite all the protestations and so on. I think they realise that this is only going to accelerate, it's only going to make their own business case um, weaker. Mm. And I think, um, as, a, as an addendum to that, I think Australia's policy towards um, giving the go-ahead to these new projects, you know, like in WA um, and Northern Territory, I think the big danger is, and... Uh, is that they're going to become stranded assets, that this acceleration is going to happen quickly. And the only way these, these fossil fuel people make, the industry makes their money is you've got to wait 30 or 40 years to make their money back because mm. it's such a massive upfront investment. And so, uh, you know, I would ask why, you know, just purely on economic terms, um, why are you uh, allowing these projects to go ahead when possibly within 10 years they're going to be totally redundant? Mm. No, it is. It's irresponsible, it's isn't it? Yeah. For that, for that capital to be to be flushed down the dunny yeah. uh, by by you know when when we really need it to be yeah. allocated yeah. for for, for so projects. It, it, it's yeah. the position the Australian government takes is in a way an impossible position because mm. on the one hand they're trying accelerate, and I think they're right behind it, accelerating the amount of renewables here. Oh yeah, the, you know the capacity investment schemes come on board, and they're really trying to accelerate the process. Mm. But on you know on the other hand, they're still um, approving projects that um, otherwise shouldn't be. Yeah, yeah. Like we've got stories from the uh, Burrup Hub, the, the disrupt Burrup Hub people uh, who were just you know this week locked on to you know uh, the the, the Nopsema, uh, offices in Perth, and you know there's just all around the country there's 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 people uh, you know highlighting these these terrible projects that yeah. really should not be given yeah. approval which are being yeah. rushed through by the yeah. ALP yeah. so yeah they're sort of you know giving with one hand and taking with the other and it's yeah. you got to say that uh, yeah like you say Bowen's uh, and and the, the the ALP government's uh you know renewables policy does seem to be effective and we'll have 
um, we'll have Tim Buckley on later on in the show to oh, give good. us some more detail about oh, that. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So, so there does, and as you say, China also. I think Tim's yeah. going to have something to say about China because yeah. there, there's lots of good news on. The, but we can't have the, the, the balancing act, which we can't have. Yeah. Just don't have time for, for to be able to say, oh, well we'll, well, we'll give you a heap of renewables and then we'll keep approving. Well, they've been playing know, that. Ga- m- most governments throughout the world, including Australia, has been playing that game now for a long time. Mm. But mm. I think it's going to break. It's I, coming to uh, an yeah, end. Yeah, I, I think it's going to. You know, the pr- and that's the good thing about COP, even though it wasn't a brilliant success. Mm. I think the incremental improvements each year is just adding adding to the pressure. You know, mm. and they're not going to go backwards, so they're going to have to improve on the previous position. You can't go backwards from a consensus position like that, and that's one of the things about it is the COP process is fundamentally flawed because it's dr- driven by consensus. It yeah. was forced into being a consensus process by OPEC when yeah. they were first set up in yeah. in, uh, in the Rio, which is ridiculous so, because yeah. it means that anyone can veto it. Yeah, and every single country in the, in yeah. the world gets the chance to veto the, the, the you yeah. know the sensible decisions of seventy percent of the other countries are yeah. voting for. So yeah. it's clearly a ludicrous. So you can't expect it to be a world leading uh, no. body, but it is sort of bringing up the rear quite effectively yeah. and drawing a line under. This is the minimum amount yeah. that we're, we're and, now going to accept. And, and, yeah. and also, I think we're seeing for the first time precisely the attitude of these fossil fuel companies and, and and the extent to which they're prepared to go and i think that's that's been a lot clearer this time a lot of the s- previous ones were sort of behind closed doors you didn't quite know what was going on mm. but i think there was more information about you know their opposition and we really know what it's very clear to me um you know what 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 they have to deal with absolutely absolutely it does seem to be becoming clear to the world this is the uh, the final article it was a very uh, i was very impressed with this article i must say um a little different, and it brings up some old... Oh, this is about the James Hansen? Yeah, James Hansen um, idea. He's come out with a report. The uh, It was in the conversation by Robert Chris on the 9th of December, and the disagreement, that the title is, the disagreement between two climate scientists that will decide our future. It's a pretty stark sort of mm. comment. And there's a debate going on between a couple of scientists, and I might just go through the article slowly, so to get the uh, the listeners a bit of an idea, there's a bit of science involved in this. Um, so it says, getting to net zero emissions by 2050 is considered best hope for keeping Earth's surface temperature from going beyond 1.5. Or at least one prominent climate uh, scientist disagrees. Now, James Hansen, who's well... Well, he was well known I- back in the late 80s because he was uh, working for NASA and he was the climate change person and he taught he presented a very powerful talk i think it was a senate committee meeting and uh, he predicted what was going to happen and what was that over 30 years ago it's and um some people listened to him but uh, eventually the i think the fossil fuel industry managed to keep the whole thing quiet Um, but he's just recently published a paper with some colleagues and he claims that the temperature uh, rises are much are going to be much um, bigger, the temperature rise, and much faster than the IPCC predicted. Mm. In his opinion, 1.5 degrees centigrade is dead. Mm. Um, He also claims that the net zero won't um, prevent warming of more than 2 degrees C. Mm. So even if we get to net zero, he reckons that... And I'll just go into some figures short in a minute. Mm. Um, he, He says that... Therefore, as a result of that, Hansen states that to regain control over the 
temperature, Earth's temperature, we need to do a number of things. Well, the first thing, of course, is to accelerate the retirement of fossil fuels. We know that. Um, the second one, which is interesting, and I'm still not fully understanding of it, but I'll just read it out. It says, accommodate the needs of the developing world by greater cooperation between major polluters. Mm somehow taking into account the needs of developing nations, I suppose, mm. and um, I'm not sure. But the third one, which is the one that we're going to talk about, is intervening in Earth's radiation balance. Mm. It's a controversial move. In order to cool the planet, the planet by reducing the amount of sunlight reaching Earth's surface. And that's mm. what um, he wants to really focus on. Now, his ideas are in opposition to a fellow called Michael Mann mm. from the Uni of Pennsylvania, and he's well known over in the States. He's a titan of climate science. I actually saw him the other day uh, being interviewed um, when I was researching this article. And he's dismissed this solar radiation management idea. He, sa he says it's based on a fallacy. Mm. He, um, that, and the fallacy that he believes is that large-scale warming um, is going to be substantially greater than the current models predict. He just doesn't quite believe that. So they're in opposition. Who is right? Good question. So let's just go further with this. There's only two ways to reduce global warming. One is to increase the amount of heat radiated from the Earth's surface mm. that escaped to space. So the amount of heat that's already being generated, somehow you've got to allow the heat to get through the layer of CO2 and other gas greenhouse gases. Right. The other is to increase the amount of sunlight reflected back mm. to space. Mm. So that's where he comes in. And there's various ideas about that. been around for ages, about using aerosols, etc. Mm. So anything that reduces the amount of greenhouse gases will let more heat escape to space. And the way um, we're doing it, or the present our ideas are to use renewables, which reduces the amount of greenhouse gases. Other ways is to eat less meat, mm. so there'll be less methane. Soil management, there'll be more CO2 being absorbed by soil. So that, that they're the general ideas. Yep. Now, anything that makes the planet brighter, that is more reflective, will direct radiation to space. Mm. And, the ref and these, for example, as I said, reflective particles in the atmosphere. Now, I know it's controversial. Mm. Yeah, no, I put my tinfoil hat on now. So yeah. just, 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 now, sure just to keep now safe. The, now, the reasons behind it. <laughs> now, this is, this is the key point. The difference between the two approach, um, approaches is in the response time. Now, intervening to speed up the loss of heat from Earth's surface, that is to act on the greenhouse gas effects um, in order to cool the Earth, can take decades and longer. Mm. In fact, you know, the breakdown of CO2... Um, usually takes centuries mm. to come, you know, whereas methane breaks down rapidly to CO2, but then the CO2 in turn, it's a more, uh, uh, it's harder to break down. Mm. And so that's one of the arguments that, okay, um, that CO2 isn't going to go anywhere in a hurry. Um, intervening to increase the sunlight, on the other hand, uh, whereby the radiation is reflected back to space, the uh, cooling of the planet occurs immediately. Mm. There's mm. an immediate response. Now we saw we we um, we saw the difference. Do you remember when the 9/11 um, uh, occurred? Mm. There was, if I remember, there was an, a sudden increase in temperature, and the reason being was that the um, aerosols from the the pollution from the 
oh, yeah. from the jets oh, yeah. w was no longer there. Right. So there was more heat. There was, they measured a slight increase in temperature. Right. So he's, he's advocating for this to be done on a systematic basis. I think so, yeah. yeah. He hasn't gone into, into a lot, lot of it, but um, that's his main sort of idea behind yeah. it, mm. that we need to do that. Um, let me just see. So, yeah, that's the essence. That's the difference between them. Now, w the, the final bit of this article is when will warming end? Mm. And this is also has bearing on this article. Now, Mann, uh, Michael Mann, aligns with the IPCC orthodoxy, which is essentially that net zero, once net zero is met, uh, which is within a, a decade or two, Earth's temperature will stabilise. Mm. Within a decade or so, yeah, mm. it'll, it'll stabilise. That is, there'll be no significant warming from past emissions. Mm. Only, new, only new emissions will produce further warming. Now, that's where there's a point of departure f mm. from um, James Hansen's idea. He argues that if greenhouse gases remain close to current level, the surface temperature will stabilise uh, after several hundred years. Oh, he's saying there's and much, it's gonna much be longer tail. And it's going to be between 8 and 10 degrees. Mm. Yeah, it's going to be absolutely massive. Now, that's, that's his modelling. It is just his modelling. Mm. You know, I'm just pointing out that it is a, a point of view or uh, it's his research. Now, of this, two degrees will probably emerge by mid-century and a further three degrees by uh, within a century from now. And, of course, it would be catastrophic. So that's where Hansen says we've got to do something else. Mm. And that's where we've got, got to brighten the earth. And there are various ways that that can be done. Now, he gives an example of what to expect in the immediate future. Now, you, I don't know if you know, but uh, shipping... There's been a move for quite some time now to try and reduce the amount of sulphur dioxide that comes from oil when mm. oil's burnt from yep. shipping. He's really dirty oil for shipping. Yeah, dirty oil, that's right. Yep. Now, the effect of that, though, is going to increase... He's predicted that the temperature will go up by 0.5 of a degree. <laughs> because we reduced the sulphur yeah, dioxide. Yeah, yeah, and he's expecting that to happen um, next year. Mm. And he says that the, the global warming might... The impact of that might be that in various places it might go up to two degrees. So Greta Thunberg sailing across the Atlantic was, uh, it was actually bad for the climate. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's right. Now, it sounds, it might be a bit alarmist, but that's what he's predicting, that yeah. as early as next year, there could be a two degrees rise mm. if this um, effect kicks in yeah. on top of what we're, and, you know, we're having a bad um, year next year, which, you know, seems like we're going to. Um, so... The other thing is that the other part of his argument, and this is the final bit, is that the IPCC, in their modelling, they say that um, if we double the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, the temperature will rise by three degrees mm. above industrial levels, pre-industrial levels, whereas Hansen calculates that to be 4.8, which is much more. So there's a couple of reasons behind it, and uh, I'll end up there. That's essentially his plea that we have to do more than just stopping the flow of um, greenhouse gases well you know it, it's i mean we're in an alarming situation and he's clearly taking the most uh, like, like looking at it uh, from the most alarming perspective yeah you know, and uh, I, i've got no uh, no knowledge about anything yeah. that he's talking about there yeah. so it's uh, nothing well, th there have been various plans um and i can maybe just mention a couple mm. um one is of course is the production of sulfur dioxide and well we know that when volcanoes 
for example, explode, they, they can throw up a huge amount of sulfur dioxide, mm. sulfur particles and so on. Um, the, other, the other one which has been talked about I know, in various circles is to, using satellites or using uh, rocketry, is to um, produce a whole series of reflectors around the Earth. Oh, yeah. Uh, it'd be on a massive scale, of course, mm. um, but that that idea has been talked about. That sounds like a massive engineering feat, and one which would require a huge amount of energy to be expended in the process of doing it. It would be a huge job. And, and yeah, it, it would be. It would be downsides of all sorts, and yeah. I can hear the uh, I can hear the uh, the chemtrails crowd out there uh, already yeah. getting excited about that. Uh, yeah. But you know, like it's yeah. it's clearly anyway. Look, he's just broached the topic, mm. and mm. Um, you know they're gonna. He may well be right. Mm. We'll find out fairly soon. Yep. Well, I guess so. And Michael Mann is a is a very authoritative source as well. It's interesting to hear two yeah, such eminent two. climate scientists yeah. who are so, two of the world's leading uh, vo- voices yeah. on this uh, topic uh, coming to having some disagreements about how extreme our measures have to be in yeah. order to address the uh, yeah. uh, the problem. So. Uh, Oh, well, there you go. Nice one, George. Brought a little bit of controversy to the table yeah, today. Yeah, it, it's a different point of view, a different yeah. point of view. And I know I have certainly would have absolutely been disinterested in the idea of, of doing that, of mm. sending up aerosols, because it, it can have unintended consequences. Mm. But if some of these dire predictions um, come true, there may... I, th- I think that one yeah. of the good things about the geoengineering theory that you've uh, you've just outlined there, it sounds like it, it can be done quickly and it will have an, a very short-term effect. Yeah. So it's one of those things where if, if we decide that the emergency is really getting to be yeah. uh, out of control, that maybe that's one of those things. That well, we as I said, it's happened do. naturally. You know, yeah. when there's been massive uh, volcanic explosions, um, mm. that kind of... Um, pollution or whatever you'd like to call it it's not really pollution but it can circulate around the world mm. you know all the gases the sulfur dioxide um dust and um, carbon and so on um and so you know uh, you have those uh winters mm. what they call them nuclear winters or something yeah, where exactly. where uh, yeah mm. so it can happen naturally yeah mm. yeah oh well fascinating as always, George, thank you so much for, for, bringing, uh, for bringing all that information yes. to, to the table for us. Yeah, I thought that was uh, a little interesting. <laughs> <laughs> we actually have on the line uh, d- to speak to us next one of two knitting nanas, Helen Cavelda and Dominic Jacobs, who took legal action to defend the right to protest back in October 2022 after the New South Wales government passed new laws following a series of climate-related demonstrations. Last Wednesday, the Supreme Court upheld parts of that constitutional challenge, declaring parts of the Crime Act are invalid because they infringe on the implied freedom of political communication. I have Helen on the line to speak to us about the the issues that uh, were brought up in that case uh, for her and, and uh, Dom. So, Helen, thank you for joining Environmental as Anything today. Hi, Sean. Thank you. Look, I know uh, you've got uh, to get off to choir soon, so we'll try not to keep you too long, but uh, really appreciate uh, you putting time into and explaining to us what's going on. So what, what was it that... Uh, I wanted to get a bit of background on you uh, fr- from you first. What was it that uh, uh, prompted you to, uh, to take this action? You, you've, you are one of the Sydney Knitting yeah. Nanners? 
Well, I guess it was partly personal because Dominique and I did an action, not as Nana's officially, but as part of Blockade Australia last year, where we blocked uh, a road going into Port Botany and were arrested and so forth. And the very next day is when they changed the laws right. and made it that it was you could have t two years in jail, the $22,000 fine. And when we were driving back from Sydney, we happened to get a phone call, I think, from a, a Guardian journalist who said, you know, now they've changed the laws, would you do it again? And we were all very gung-ho and said, oh, yes, of course he would. And then afterwards, we kind of thought about it and thought, well, hang on a minute, two years in jail, that's actually very, very threatening. Mm. And it's and you're not only, like, it's not just you, that affects your family. And in our case, we're both, uh, we both do native animal care, you know, so a whole lot of things, like you just be sitting in jail or not living your life mm. just because the government's pissed off at you for having a protest. So I think that's partly what inspired us to sort of realise, well, it's not as simple as just saying, oh, yeah, we'll just do it anyway, because it actually, like people... It's hard for people to be able to live their life and protest if you've got penalties like that hanging over you. Yes. Yes, I heard Violet Coco speaking uh, on uh, on Four Triple Z yesterday on the uh, Paradigm Shift show, actually uh, being interviewed, talking about uh, how if she had been locked in prison for the last year, she wouldn't have achieved uh, a lot of the things that she has done. So it, it does certainly chill your capacity yeah. uh, to to do what you to speak truth to power, doesn't it? It does. Mm. Yeah. So what's the outcome then? So you, well, first of all, before we get to the outcome, so what was the process for you in taking this, uh, this making this challenge through the Supreme Court? Well, oh, sorry, the High Court, isn't it? Uh, no, the Supreme Court. Supreme the Court. EDO yeah. kind of did the, the legwork in the sense of, because, I mean, it was a, because it was a constitutional challenge, it was all very legalistic and we don't really even understand all that. Hmm. Uh, the main thing we had to do was write affidavits, which was excruciating because we we had to uh, write every protest we'd ever been in, which in my case I couldn't even remember because it's 50 years worth. And, and, you know, these affidavits were quite long and, you know, like where, where we protested, what it was about, you know, uh, what actions were taken and so on. Um, for me, that was the hardest part, really, mm. um, and very time-consuming and annoying. Um, but then, then when we when it went to court, it was one day in court, and the bar you know barristers on both sides were arguing it. But interestingly, those affidavits were brought up a lot. Right. You know, Ms. Cavill just said such and such, or Ms. Um, Jacobs said such and such. So we kind of realised the point of it more then than mm. it was. Uh, necessary. So they weren't. In fact, so they weren't qu quizzing you or cross-examining you. You weren't. You weren't subjected to any kind of no, like high drama in the courtroom. They no, just no, read no, your no. documents. We didn't even have to go. Yeah. But we wanted to go because we wanted to hear what happened. And we, although a lot of it was kind of legal argument, we felt like we could understand most of it. Mm. And it was interesting on the basis of the those affidavits. The, a Channel 7 reporter came up during the lunch break and wanted to interview us because he, he'd heard our, what we'd said being read out. Great. So that was interesting. Hmm. Well, you must have made a real impression there. You've obviously well, you got have. quite a story to tell. <laughs> I should see those affidavits. I'd like to... <laughs> <laughs> 
probably all on record. Yep. So um, it, it's it's done. There was there was a partial success, I, as I understand it, and we're going to talk to Sue Higginson next mm. to try to get some of the more of the legal uh, angles on this. As you say, not, neither you or I are sufficiently expert to really know, but she is. But uh, well, I haven't fully read it yet, but to me, it it, it is a success mm. because, like, one of the things in the law was that you were not to damage property. So we didn't get that, but we didn't want to damage property. Mm. We, we're never the slightest bit interested, like we're peaceful protesters. Mm. So not for, so for that bit of the law to stand, as far as I'm concerned, is fine. Of course we don't damage property. And I think the other thing that still stands is you're not allowed to completely take over a facility, mm. like the port or whatever, but you're still allowed to protest at it. Mm. So again, we, you know, we, we weren't expecting to completely take over any facility, so in a way, when I sort of look at look at it, I think we won what we needed to win. Mm. Mm. And uh, do you, you said to me, uh, you think you're hoping that this? Well, I mean, as a constitutional challenge, it clearly will mm. have national implications. I hope so, because mm. it, I mean, the same harsh laws have been brought in nearly all the other states, and people are facing jail, and it's it's just well, and like. Um, Colette went to jail for three months mm. in Tasmania for chaining herself to a tree. Mm. Mm. It's just ridiculous. Mm. It's alarming, isn't it? But um, so, what next uh, for you, Helen? What do you think you're going to be doing uh, for for uh, the the, cl- the climate? Uh, you know, after the silly season. Uh, well, the nanas keep going. Yep. Even during the silly season, we'll be still there outside our politicians' office next Friday. <laughs> Like we are every Friday, mm. uh, and I mean some the nanas are a very variable group. We call ourselves a disorganisation of nanas, <laughs> and a lot of nanas also support other groups like Extinction Rebellion or Blockade Australia, and some of us have got involved lately with a group called Rising Tide. Yes. I think looking at at your podcast, you've talked to Rising Tide people already. I oh, was at so the, the Rising nanas, Tide. Yep. You would, yeah, well, the nanas were a big presence at Rising Tide. Like we had a tent set up next to the next to the first aid tent, mm. um, talked to lots of people. Some of the nanas went on the water. I yep. didn't on this occasion. So we're going to stay involved with that, uh, and they're hoping to do it. You know, try and make it three times bigger next yep. year. Yep. So, and I guess I guess also we try to be. Uh, flexible and available to do uh, sort of what would you call it like pop-up process mm. like if you hear something is happening uh, to be able n- not always us nanas up here in the country but certainly the Sydney nanas I'll be able to like send out a, a, a notice to everyone hey can everyone come to so-and-so's office tomorrow because they've done such and such so there's that opportunity to to sort of protest on a very ad hoc basis and some of the mid-coast nanas up here, I haven't done it because I'm a bit further from Newcastle, but the ones closer to Newcastle have been going down to Pat Conroy's office once a month because he's the Minister for the Pacific. Right. And we feel particularly concerned that we're really letting our Pacific countries down by not doing enough about climate change. They're going to lose their whole country. Mm. Like it's, it's really horrible. It's appalling. So it's... So the nanas have been going to see him once a month and try and put some pressure for them for Australia to step up a bit more and do more. 
Well, I hope that this uh, this decision is, is is liberating for you. That you feel that you're uh, you're 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 now free to go out there and speak truth to power wherever you need to, because uh, you're clearly doing a great job of it. Well, thank you very much. And and we yeah we do feel it. We, I mean, I guess we would have kept protesting, I and mean, we probably would have risked jail, but but we we didn't want to go to jail, so we're glad <laughs> that we don't have to. And it's not very nice even just being in the lockup. You know, mm. where you're just there for. We were, I think that we were there for about eight hours, mm. and it's and we were treated well compared to probably a lot of people. Mm. But even seeing how the police treat some of the other people that come in, you know, mm. they're not very nice. It's 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 a disturbing experience. Yeah. Like you you get to learn a lot. Mm. Yes, I'm sure. I know. I know. Um, well, Helen, look, thank you so much for sharing your experience with us here at Environmental as Anything. That's fine, and I'll start listening to your podcast now. Yes, yes, tune in and share them around with your friends. We'll have you yeah. on our podcast on mon- Monday, and uh, okay. the more the merrier. I'll tell all the nanas, and I'm sure they'll listen. <laughs> Good on you. Okay. Thanks, Thank Helen. Thank you very much. Happy okay, Christmas, and uh, peace and justice to yep. you and yours. Yep, you too. Thank you. No Bye. Worries. Bye. That was uh, Helen Cavelday from the Sydney Knitting Nanas, who was uh, speaking about the constitutional challenge that she and Dominic Jacobs took uh, to the Supreme Court of Australia uh, against the, uh, the repressive elements of the uh, New South Wales uh, laws, which are uh, intended to stifle uh, protest. And, and won. They've won the case on Wednesday, or at least got a, a, a partial victory. I'm going to speak to Sue Higginson next here on Environmental as Anything uh, as soon as uh, I can get her on the line to give us a legal wrap-up on that case. So uh, stay tuned. Uh, we've got plenty more to come after that. We still have uh, my interview with uh, Maz from Disrupt Burrup Hub. Uh, my, my interview with Scott Jordan from the Bob Brown Foundation in Tarkina, uh, down in Tasmania. So that's uh, upcoming in the show. And also looking forward to speaking to Tim Buckley uh, very soon. So uh, plenty more to come here on Environmental as Anything. Stay with me. <laughs> Well, as I was saying, uh, we were just speaking to uh, Helen Cavelde from the Sydney Knitting Nanas and Friends and uh, talking about uh, the, her successful constitutional challenge to the uh, right to protest laws here in New South Wales. Now, both Helen and I were a bit discombobulated about what the details uh, of all of that really meant from a legal perspective. So who better to fill us in on all of that than uh, Sue Higginson, regular friend of the show and uh, MLC in New South Wales Parliament and, of course, former uh, Chief Solicitor and Head of the the Environmental Defender's Office. Uh, Thank you, Sue, for joining Environmental as Anything again today. Oh, pleasure always. Hi, Sean. It's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big deal, isn't it, this case? It's a, a successful uh, a Supreme Court uh, case challenging these laws. It was, uh, it was never going to be a, a, a lay-down misere, from, from what I understand. Absolutely. I mean, two knitting nanas take the state on um, and then win. That's, <laughs> you know, that's, um, that's no small feat. And... Um, you know, these stories are always David and Goliath, and I say that 
from kind of frontline litigation solicitor on the record experience. That's kind of how it is. It's when the state is arguing against you, even if even if you know you're right or you think you're right, it is such a hard battle. Mm. You know, you have literally crown solicitors. You have every lawyer at the, you know, they have every lawyer at their beck and call if they so desire, um, and they stack the table against you and they fight hard. And, you know, we saw that literally. So, you know, the first step to this proceedings was the state said these two nanas didn't have standing. Mm-hmm. They didn't even have a right to come before the court. So, you know, you, you, you literally, are, you've got your hands tied behind your back. You've got your feet tied together, you've got a gag over your mouth and you're standing in quicksand. Hmm. And these two amazing knitting nanas with their spectacular legal team and having um, the right side of the law on their side, they they prevailed. Hmm. And so look, what this was, was we know that the laws that were being challenged were part of a suite of laws that were introduced um, early last year when the Liberal Coalition government did a knee-jerk response reaction to some of the protests that were happening in the Sydney CBD and Port Botany. And this was the Blockade Australia, the Fireproof, and of course, Extinction Rebellion, the Nicking Nanas. This was an incredible kind of coming together for climate change. This was particularly motivated motivated by young people. Uh, and I think that a lot of what the Nana's kind of narrative around this proceedings has been is we've been involved in these protests because the young people are calling for climate action and we're here to respond with them. That's, you know, I've heard that sort of both from Dom and Helen and the other Nana's that have been involved. So the Liberal Coalition government ran into Parliament and did a suite of laws that became known as the anti-protest laws and what they did is introduced a number of criminal um, offences and some offences to the roads, rules and laws but the ones in the Crimes Act that Helen Helen and Don were challenging was the section 214 of the D of the Crimes Act which was basically saying relating to infrastructure, relating to port infrastructure, major trains, trains, rail corridors, etc. And this was about, if you do harm or damage, then it's a criminal offence. Well, you know, we already know that. There's already existing laws. This was a special law. Um, And in addition to that, if you disrupt or obstruct, then it's a criminal um, offence. But the overreach was here. The overreach was... Oh, and if you shut down even partially one of these facilities because of your protest, um, it's a criminal offence. And thirdly, if you prevent people from entering one of these infrastructure or these facilities, then it's a criminal offence too. And the criminal criminality was what you know harsh and excessive. We were looking at two years imprisonment and twenty-two thousand dollar fines for these offences. So. The Nana's actually challenged all the laws and the court, on the basis, this is the fundamental argument, is that within the Australian Constitution, well, actually, it's not even written, but the best part of the Australian Constitution is the bit that's not written in it. and that's implied. Is the, exactly. The implied freedom of political communication. 
This is an, um, a freedom or a right that's been read into the Constitution over many decades now by the High Court. Mm. The High Court has said, absolutely, we do have this representative democracy. There are these things within that representative democracy that surely the Constitution that creates the Westminster and the democratic system and the separation of powers in Australia, surely as that was being drafted, there was envisaged within that this ability and capacity for all citizens to engage with it, to engage in political communication. And the High Court has been tested over many decades now about what the breadth and the test and what it looks like, that freedom of political communication. And what we know is that the freedom of political communication is something that is a, a mechanism to protect citizens mm. and communities from harsh and onerous and draconian laws of the state and the Commonwealth for that matter that may unjustifiably infringe upon that implied freedom of political communication. Yes, Justin Wal Justice Walton is quoted here as saying is that it's a, a, an indispensable incident of the constitutionally prescribed system of government is that implied freedom to communicate that's on it. governmental and political matters. And that's it. And the reality is We've had it, ex we've kind of had it expressed by the um, High Court in various ways over the years. And so what the women were doing bananas, they were saying this suite of anti-protest laws that the state government introduced, they, they've gone too far. They're, they're, they're an impermissible burden on the implied freedom of political communication. So cutting to the chase. The reality is, and this is the bit that I, um, you know, I've written to Mins uh, and the Attorney General in the last couple of days to explain and, and say, please look at the judgment. Walt, Walton actually said the entire section, the entire section of that Crimes Act that relates to the infrastructure ports, etc., and the, the the entire section does burden the implied freedom of political communication. But you, you then need to apply the test and walk through the test. And you need to look at each law, its operation, its implication, its impact, and how it, how it gets applied on the ground to individuals. He found that part one and part two of that legislation, so the bit that causes harm, uh, it creates a criminal offence to cause damage and harm and to abstract and interfere with directly. He said, Look, they burden the implied freedom of political communication. He said, but they're justified. And the reality is they are justified insofar as they don't um, impermissibly burden the implied freedom of political communication. However, however, what, what we need to now understand is we've got this fantastic ruling even about those parts and they do burden the implied freedom of political communication. And the argument now with those two provisions is we don't need them. They, they are sitting on the law books now mm. under the dark shadow of draconianism mm. um, because we know they burden the implied freedom. We know we don't need them because we've got other criminal damage offences already in the, in the Crimes Act. Mm. But the, what Walton did find is that the other two provisions, so if you take an action, and, and the action is, you know, quite... Um, quite significant. The action is you could be standing on something and you jump off or you um, stand in front of it or you, are, you, know, you, you obstruct it. Basically, he's saying if you do those actions and they cause the partial close down of, say, Sydney, the port botany, he said that, that provision 
is unjustifiably um, in, and impermissibly burdening the implied freedom of political communication. Mm. That is very significant. Mm. And then he also says that if, because, and, and this is where he sort of talks about it, if you are standing in front of the port entrance and you've got your banners or you've got whatever blockade you have there and you cause, say, port workers or other people to have to go another way around and around you, that's not a criminal offence either because, and he said creating that criminal offence also is an impermissible uh, burden on the implied freedom of political communication. This is, you know, this is a very significant ruling. We now know that we can look at that level, that granular level of detail about what it is people are doing when they're calling for climate action or environmental protest or, or to protect something or, or claiming, uh, you know, uh, uh, some other um, direct action, that those sort of criminal offences are overreach. To say that, I mean, realistically, you're sort of talking more about you're in this inconvenience territory. And the Liberal government, make no mistake, was seeking to legislate against disruption and inconvenience. Mm. That's what they were seeking to do. They pretty much said that. Uh, you know, I don't know if you remember, but it was Natalie Ward, the Roads Minister at the time, Liberal member, went running into Parliament and said, oh, this is absurd. You know, I got stopped on the road <laughs> and I couldn't get to work. I'm going to pass a law against traffic jams. <laughs> precisely. Because I don't and like them. <laughs> that's right. They're terribly inconvenient. Um, you know, and, and the, the, you know, the offence of that, yeah, just on that, just on that, I want to remind you and anybody listening right now, when um, we did a call for papers on the kind of making of these laws and the backstory, and interestingly, when Natalie Ward did do her op-ed, um, there was some correspondence between, I think, her office and the Attorney General's office, and it was words around the, the, the gist of, do you want to contribute to this op-ed that Natalie Ward was doing to explain why she was absolutely shocked and horrified and going to run in and rush through some laws. And the Attorney General's office response was, no, it's all a bit shrill for my liking. <laughs> so even, even people in the Liberal coalition ranks knew that there was danger around what the coalition was about to do in the parliament. And look, let's remember, the Greens stood in the parliament, both the lower house and the upper house, and every opportunity we could, we spoke against these laws. And but, and it wasn't just the Greens. What we did is we brought through the parliament the voice of all of those civil society organisations. There were hundreds of civil society organisations, legal expert organisations, the Bar Association, the Law Society, all warning these laws are overreached, they've gone too far. Mm. And mm. now we are vindicated and the Nanas have done this. And, you know, we need to remember those laws could literally be sitting on the law books for a long, long time, uh, with no blemish, just under this shadow and not really properly understood the danger and the darkness of that shadow in terms of how unhealthy they are to democracy. And these two amazing manners with the spectacular legal team of the EDO and those fabulous barristers, uh, Felicity Graham, who's one of those incredible human rights uh, uh, barristers, and Stephen Free, they all banded together. And I think what happened was, well, I know what happened. They looked at this case and they went, goodness gracious, yeah, this really is overreach. And then, of course, 
that you are compelled really to take on these cases and run them and they're difficult they are time consuming they're mountainous and dom and helen are heroic yes it's a, it's it's a it's a wonderful wonderful outcome obviously a, a powerful action uh, we've got like one minute to go before we have to wrap up though um so should uh you is this is this is this is precedent setting this is going to it's going to change the landscape does it it invalidates the the effect of the intention of these laws uh is that right yes uh, that is precisely right now you know <laughs> like all things there's a relativity to it you know um if you're someone like me that just loves this stuff and knows it kind of inside out and engages in the law and the politics and the activism around it this is very very significant is it enough no that's it the answer mm. is no mm. will the Minsk government appeal we don't know Minsk mm. have said they're looking at this as to whether they'll appeal. I have literally, two days ago, uh, on the Thursday, following the Wednesday, I wrote straight to Mims and the Attorney General and said, don't do that. Don't waste the state's resources and don't go down that path and appeal. That would not send a good message to anyone. But Take a terrible this look. Opportunity. Terrible look. look. Take this opportunity and now go and wipe the law books of all of those ridiculous anti-protest mm. laws. Mm. I've actually got a campaign going. I'm just going to do a shameless promotion. Please do. If anybody is keen, on my website right now, suehigginson.com, under campaigns, there is literally a one click to the Premier and the Attorney General. You can send an email which says, back in the nanas, back in democracy and repeal the anti-protest laws in full mm. next year. And I'm going to carry that campaign on. I'm going to keep working on it. I know there are people across the parliament. They're a bit too quiet to stand up and talk because they're in Labor, they're in the coalition. They would love to see these laws go in full in, in their entirety. The Nanas have started something and we need to back them in. Well, I'm sure you will, Sue, and we'll keep uh, posted. We'll keep you get get you back to keep us posted on all of the developments on this. So, thank you so much for uh, explaining that for us here on Environmentalist Anything today. Absolute pleasure as always. Thank you, Sean. Have a merry, uh, silly season and uh, peace and justice to you and yours. Absolutely, peace, justice, and yeah, let's save those forests. Indeed. <laughs> Thanks, Sue. That's Sue Higginson, MLC, uh, speaking to us about the Supreme Court challenge, which was uh, successful against the repressive anti-protest laws here in New South Wales just this week on Wednesday. So uh, I'm going to be coming back with uh, an interview with uh, Tim Buckley, who is standing by uh, waiting to talk to us about uh, the, his end-of-year wrap-up uh, on uh, the climate, energy and finance. So that's uh, stay tuned to Environmental As Anything. Who I've got on the line right now is the great Tim Buckley, who is uh, joining us uh, from the Climate, Energy and Finance Think Tank uh, to talk about uh, the 2023 year in review. There's just been a lot of uh, good news and some bad uh, for 2023 on the, uh, the questions of energy, climate and finance. So um, it's great to have Tim on the line as uh, one of Australia's leading voices on these matters. Tim, thanks for joining Environmental as Anything again today. Good afternoon, Sean. 
You've uh, you were just saying to me off air that uh, the AEMO review has just come out, and they've got some pretty exciting uh, assessment on our future for our coal-fired power fleet. That's correct. So AEMO, which is the Australian Energy Market Operator, they put out a, every six or twelve months the integrated system plan. Um, that's reviewed every two years and then they give out a draft of it and then ask for submissions and responses and then put out the former report. So there's a constant review of our energy requirements and of the supply um, situation and the grid transmission situation and the headlines. I, I was getting my coffee on uh, Friday morning and the Fin Review headline, the front page of the Fin Review was AEMO forecast the last coal-fired power plant in Australia will be gone within 15 years. So it's a pretty beautiful headline. Yeah. And, uh, I've been working on this for uh, more than a decade and uh, for the integrated system plan to now have as its central scenario that the last coal-fired power plant will shut in 2028 in New South... Sorry, 2038 in New South Wales. And that's up to a decade ahead of what AEMO had been modelling even two years ago. And uh, so they're saying, look, at the end of the day, the reliability of these end-of-life coal clunkers is uh, diminishing with every year. Their ability to compete against ultra-low-cost renewables whenever it's windy, whenever it's solar, sunny, uh, these coal plants just can't... Uh, compete and so uh, investors aren't going to continue to upgrade them and hold them on, hold on to them when they're well past their use by date so a beautiful headline to uh, end the year on yes yeah, good 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 uh, good news uh, for all concerned that's uh, that's great and it seems like uh, you know it, it seems one of those situations where a change of government can make a huge difference to the uh, the prospects for uh, for our future I think that's absolutely right. For all that the Albanese government is still going too slow, they're moving in the right direction and they're giving the absolutely clear signal of what the direction for Australia and for the world is and showing that they're going to each each month introduce new legislation and new rules that uh, move us towards where the science has been telling us we have to go. And so... I mean, it's just ludicrous to read every bloody day. We've got the opposition party talking about a solution which they themselves say will not be commercially viable and deployed in Australia, even if everything lines up for another twenty years. Are you referring uh, to the? Are you referring to their triple zero prank call? They're, they're, they're going to they're going to triple our our, our levels of uh, of nuclear power. Is that? <laughs> they're going to triple them and then triple them again. Yeah, I say triple them every day of the week if they want. <laughs> yeah, go for it. Uh, I mean, it's sort of. It, I thought it was hilarious that they have not just got no energy policy but they haven't got the capacity to do basic arithmetic yeah it is it's scary that they're unfortunately uh the opposition party it's lucky they are the opposition party but scary that they could get back into government we've got to make sure that voters totally understand the science understand that we're being smashed by three crises at the moment the cost of living crisis the energy crisis and the climate crisis And to solve all three of them, we need to really accelerate the deployment of solutions, zero emissions, low cost domestic solutions and renewables ticks all of those boxes. Electric vehicles tick most of those boxes. They work together beautifully. And probably the other punchline out of the integrated system plan was that EMOs upgraded their forecast by 2050 of distributed energy, meaning rooftop solar across all of the small scale 
um, warehouses, all the large-scale warehouses, all the residential properties in Australia, and they've forecast that we're already a world leader per capita. They're saying we're going to increase it fourfold within the next 27 years, and that becomes the central plank of generation for energy in Australia Mm. is rooftop solar, and Mm. it can be done really fast, and it gets around most of the grid transmission bottlenecks that we're hearing about all the time. Mm-hmm. No, it's exciting, isn't it? All right, so we'll just to go through some of the, uh, the the key points. Bowen turbochargers renewables, the Coalition's old travesty of capacity investment scheme uh, is now dead and buried, and, uh, you know, it's a, in the, the, the changes that are made, you're saying, are a game-changer. That's right. So Chris Bowen, Minister Bowen, has... Um, introduced a turbo or he's turbocharged a policy that he introduced about six to 12 months ago and increased its reach by fourfold that is working in partnership with the state governments to deliver on the joint ambitions for lower cost zero emissions higher reliability energy systems and so the federal government's stepping up and saying well we will put the federal government balance sheet on the line to underwrite the minimum revenue to new successful bidders for new capacity. So it's not guaranteeing their revenue entirely, but it's giving them a minimum revenue. And so it really de-risks these projects, which then means that developers in Australia and global developers can come here and deploy tens of billions or even hundreds of billions of dollars, knowing that at least they will, even in a bad season, get enough money to pay the interest so that they can actually crowd in debt finance as well. And that increased... Um, certainty for investors dramatically lowers the cost of energy for everyone because we're moving from a system which used to be well, totally reliant on commodities. So methane, gas and coal are commodities and they have cycles and we just saw the coal price go up tenfold. Now it's come down 70% in the last 18 months. The LNG price went up tenfold. Now all of that is fine when it's low, apart from the pollution, but it is something that the consumer can't manage because it's it's a, it's a commodity. And so when we move to financial resources like wind and solar, they're utility assets with absolute price certainty. And so they not only lower the price for everyone, but they actually reduce the volatility. And so households, I, I, one of my big forecasts, it's an easy one, I think, for June, July next year is that Everyone in the east coast of Australia, other than the ACT, will get a double-digit reduction in their retail electricity prices in, from the 1st of July if they're on the default market offer. So mm-hmm. double-digit. And that's after 20 to 30% per annum increases for the last two years. So we're going to start seeing the success of what AEMO is talking about, and that is lower prices, and, and there is scope for that to continue to go down a bit more subsequent 12 months electricity is priced in australia on a 12 month basis mm. so there's a bit of a delay but we know what's happening in the wholesale market prices are down 50 percent year on year year to date and so some of the energy crisis is dissipating and consumers have at least some relief on the horizon well that's good news uh, everyone will be glad to hear that um and then of course you've moved on to the landmark new south wales net zero act and uh, and also queensland having matched uh, new south wales uh, ambitions i hear yeah would matched or trumped it come on premier miles like that is on his first so the queensland the new queensland premier on his first day yesterday 
announced that uh, Queensland will introduce legislation for a 75% emissions reduction target by 2035. He's clearly been talking to uh, Zali Stegel, the Federal uh, Member of Parliament for Warringah, and Zali's been pushing 75 by 35 for the last two years. And uh, the first day in as Premier of Queensland, Premier Miles has introduced a... Um, 75% emissions reduction target. So and a f- lot 5% of that, better than New South Wales' effort. Yeah, and 5% doesn't sound much, but when we're talking about it, that's only 12 years from now, and that is absolutely moving to align, not almost in alignment with what the climate scientists have been saying for 40 years, but when you're starting, literally, uh, you've been slowly dragging yourself, crawling in the right direction to now get up and sprint. It's what the science says we need. It's what the finance is saying we can do. And it'll actually have lasting benefits for everyone um, on the planet um, and for Queensland and for Australia. So, yeah, but not to take um, total thunder away from New South Wales. New South Wales has already now passed legislation. So New South Wales had um, or has, as of today, the first and most ambitious act of parliament for a 50% emissions reduction by 2030 for New South Wales and then accelerating to a 70% reduction by 2035. So until Queensland actually legislates, New South Wales leading the race and now we've just got to actually see some policies to actually deliver that Mm. uh, legislated requirement. But I I I will give them a hat tip. I've been pretty harsh on the uh, Premier Mins and... uh, I still think we've got a long way to go to drag ourselves out of the coal age. I think we're still way too tied to the coal industry in New South Wales. But uh, we're moving in the right direction. We're working on biodiversity. We're working on the climate science. And we're starting to get some renewables installed. So um, we're building one of the biggest batteries in the world up in Newcastle as we speak. Uh, That's the Waratah Big Battery. Uh, Victoria has announced they're, they're, I think they're starting um, maybe next month. So they'll be under construction on the, a plant that's 30% bigger. But that shows how fast the global technology is moving. It's just staggering to watch. It's everything I hoped for five or ten years ago, and now it's coming faster than uh, even I was expecting. So it's just beautiful to see. That's awesome. That's awesome. And, uh, you know, you mentioned in in your, your report too that the uh, Queensland's awash with cash from its brilliantly progressive coal royalties deal. And that's, that's uh, uh, you know, exciting for, for, the, uh, for, for them to have the cash to be able to back uh, that, that kind of play, isn't it? It is. And that's why I say I give Premier Minns a bit of a serve. He mm. has, um, New South Wales has announced it will increase our coal royalties towards what Queensland's done, but I think they've really screwed up on two points. One, they um, they took 18 months to stuff around, and then when they announced it, the small primos, and by the way, we'll give them another nine months um, leave before it starts applying. So it only applies from July next year. Now, the horse has bolted. It's now right on the far hill, and it's about to go over the hill. So by the time July comes around, mm. the coal price will be back to its long-term average, would mm. be my forecast. <laughs> And therefore, we won't get any any major royalty. Or worse, and this is a highly likely probable outcome, the coal mining companies are now seeing enormous cost inflation on their um, mining costs. Mm. Um, couldn't wish it on a better organisation, but uh, <laughs> sector. But the workers, the the cost of of exporting coal has gone up fifty, sixty, seventy percent. The price went up 
tens times, mm. but now that it's coming down, by the time this royalty hits, the coal companies will be losing money, and then they're going to whinge like mm. mad, saying, oh, New South Wales, you've put in a progressive coal royalty just as our, our coal prices come down. Whereas Queensland, Cameron Dick, the treasurer of Queensland, has brought in a progressive coal royalty, which means that it's sharing the supernormal profits when they're being made. And by the way, supernormal profits for Queensland have been in the order for the industry, 30, 40, 50 billion dollars in the last year. And um, so that was 2022. And Queensland shared up to 40% of that. But when the coal price goes back to normal, they go back to getting a 7 or 8% royalty, whereas our coal companies will pay a flat 10 to 11% royalty, whether they're making money or losing money. So you know, you can tell they will be whinging like mad when they're losing money and their royalties have gone up. They won't even mention the fact they've just had three years of making 100% return per annum. Mm. That'll be forgotten. That'll be banked in their Swiss tax havens. And uh, so I really wish Premier Mins had had a little bit more courage and borrowed a little bit of spine from... Um, Cameron Dick up in Queensland and brought in a progressive royalty and brought it in immediately so that he could then have some money to actually help alleviate the cost of living crisis. That, mm. um, Lost opportunity it. now and no point crying over spilt milk, as they say, but uh, certainly lessons to be learned there for the future. Lots of, lots of other good news around the country, though, with, uh, you know, uh, all of the states re- uh, announcing, you know, significant leaps forward. Uh, uh, Victoria announcing 24 gigawatts of generation uh, capacity re- and 30 gigawatts of storage capacity for the, for the latest tendering round. Western Australia, uh, you know, doing, uh, proposing another 500 megawatts uh, of battery. Uh, and uh, and then the ACT government uh, cutting off, banning all new gas connections. And I know that the Victorian government uh, taking steps in the same direction. So there's there's some significant steps in the right direction this year from all of those states, aren't there? There are, and I'll go back to your first point. The federal government, the Anthony Albanese government, is actually creating the framework to give the states the confidence to do that. Mm. So it's a, it's a team effort, and it's just wonderful to see that we actually have governments, both at the federal and state level, all mucking in, working together to actually solve the global climate crisis. Now we've got to do it fast enough. But I think Treasurer Chalmers had a big investor roundtable three weeks ago with 20 of the biggest financial institutions in Australia, which are some of the biggest financial institutions in the world, and they came out and he put out a major press release saying, oh, we're going to go really hard on renewables because the finances industry is telling us to a man and a woman that if we actually um, create the right policy framework, they will crowd in hundreds of billions of dollars to actually deliver the solutions we need. But the government's got to provide the framework. And I totally agree with that conclusion. So it was wonderful to see Chalmers, who actually this week also announced a massive improvement in the federal deficit he's forecasting a one billion dollar deficit i reckon it'll be a surplus again so the alp for all the crap from the murdoch media that the alp don't know how to manage the economy but the lmp does the lmp delivered the biggest deficits in australian history for nine years in a row and our charmers i reckon in six months time we'll be seeing that he'll be delivering his second surplus out of two Two out of two, big green tick. Mm. Nine out of nine, big red cross for Frydenberg and the uh, the LMP. So the crap about um, the ALP not being good fiscal managers. Well, Chalmers is absolutely riding high on the commodity cycle and on sensible 
government. He's been rebuilding capacity. He's been cutting all of the consultants that cost an arm and a leg and then steal and commit treason against our country. Yeah. Like, uh, and he's, he's bringing the public service back to actually have public servants work for Australia. What a radical concept. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think a couple of decades of privatisation, we've learned that uh, that doesn't quite work for the average person in the street. So... Uh, now we've got to have Chalmers actually loosen the purse strings a bit and show a little more vision because he's shown clear financial sense. Huge tick from me. I'm a finance person, but now we've got to invest in the future. Mm-hmm. And so, and skipping ahead, there's the um, the, the COP, uh, as much as there was some, uh, some disappointment around it not taking the strong action that is really needed for the climate. It certainly has taken some steps forward and uh, one of the headlines here in your report is 130 nations plus Australia sign up at COP for a three-time renewables by 2030. Now that's getting a lot of people excited around the world but it's it's also about the uh, uh, tripling energy efficiency or is it doubling energy efficiency over the same period? Correct. Mm -hmm. So they're beautiful headlines like a tripling of renewable energy and then the first question could we actually do it? Mm. I have to give China a shout out. China is doubling their manufacturing capacity of batteries, EVs and solar every two years. So two years ago, we said you couldn't triple solar and wind installs around the world in the next six years. Now it's entirely doable. Mm. It's also the economically rational thing to do. And as you said, 130 countries have signed up, including Australia, to, you know, led by Minister Bowen. So I'll give him again a shout out. If he does good things, I will shout them yeah. out. Credit and where it's due. Yeah, exactly. And doubling energy efficiency as well. So that's where Senator McAllister has really been highlighting that in Australia. But Minister Bowen said that over at COP and that actually got in the final decision that we've got to double energy productivity, energy efficiency. Mm. You know, the, the best energy you can use is the, have is the energy you don't need. Mm. So that's having an insulated house so that when your air conditioner is on, after an hour, your house is cool and you can turn it off mm. because you've actually got awnings and you've got uh, sealed windows and you've got double glazing and got insulation. And so it actually dramatically reduces the the energy needs. And so that's, that's a really big one, doubling energy efficiency and trebling the global installed base of renewables by 2030. That's a game changer if the world can deliver on that. Mm. And Might as, even leave the place as a livable planet for our children. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. Uh, yeah it, it, um, China again. Now we've got uh, you know the, the, China's huge expansion of clean tech manufacturing is driving costs down dramatically and uh, making this tr- transition to renewables entirely economically sensible and viable. You say so. China, China, China zooms ahead. What are they really doing? Yeah, and I I say that deliberately provocatively because I know a lot of people will quite rightly throw another fact at us, which is that China is still building a new coal-fired power plant every week. They Mm. are. Mm. But as the International Energy Agency models, that China's coal fleet is really modern. In other words, it's the exact opposite of what we've got. Mm. And a modern coal plant designed by China, built by China, is the best technology in the world it's designed to be flexible. So they're aiming to run these coal plants 20, 30, 40% of the time when it's not sunny, when it's not windy. In other words, they're using coal like we use gas peakers. Right. And they're also building 10 gigs a year of pumped hydro storage, 
which is another form of long duration storage to complement variable wind and solar. And then they're building a absolute truckload of battery energy systems. So they're really designing the system around what resources they've got and what is needed to manage the reliability and affordability of the grid. And so you've got to put in context that they, they are building new coal-fired power plants, but they're not aiming to turn them on. And so if they're not turned on 70% of the time, they're not polluting for 70% of the time. They're mm. not the old coal clunkers that we got down in on the Trobe Valley. Mm. Um, but China is building like 20 gigawatts of wind and solar every month this year it like in three months they build more wind and solar than the australian energy system in total the australian electricity we took 50 years to build our electricity system and in three months they're building more wind and solar than we've actually got now that's a capacity figure not a generation figure for the uh, energy wonks but uh, it, it is showing how fast they're moving right they're five times bigger installs than in than, than america in 2023 and their economy is smaller than the americans yet they're building five times as much and by the way that figure is double on what they're doing a year ago and my forecast is they will probably increase at another 50 percent in the next two years and that's what they need to do if they triple if they make it 30 gigs a month by 2030 they can treble their installed renewable energy system by 2030 when it's already the biggest in the world by a country mile. So I think we need to keep... China is the world leader in this area. They're an enormous country. They've got a huge population. They've got a huge pollution base, but they're also the world's number one in every zero emissions technology solution that we need. So mm. we need we need China, and so I'm cheering for them because the world can't decarbonise without China, and yet we're actually going to rely on their manufacturing and te technology know-how like there's one Chinese company, the, one of my colleagues, Matt Pollard, went and visited two weeks ago, three weeks ago now. It spends two billion US dollars a year on research and development in the battery space. They've got 18,000 research and development staff working on enhancing the quality of the batteries. Uh, that's all of the batteries you'll see in the electric vehicles, and they've got 18,000 workers. One company, two billion dollars. I mean, you find R&D even mentioned in Chevron or Exxon or Woodside's annual report and I'll, I'll give you a thousand bucks because it's not there. They don't spend anything on R&D. They don't, they don't invest in their future no. and the Chinese companies invest just an it's a different way of thinking. They've got a different political system and in this regard, it is actually working. Um, it's quite staggering how mm. much they spend on research and development and then they spend even more on deploying that new technology, commercializing it and putting it in. So they replace all of their solar factories almost every five years so that they're only producing the best, latest technology. I mean, mm. it's, it's just staggering. It's like Japan was doing 30 or 40 years ago, and now China's doing it. That is exciting. Uh, and, you know, the prospects, uh, you know, very real for, for that they're being able to turn around the crisis if, uh, if they carry on like that. But uh, anyway, we'll have to see. As, they, as you, they say, a different political system, they make their five-year plans and they stick to them. So, uh, you know, anyway, we've also got uh, the, the Inflation Reduction Act in the US and you say there's echoes of it here in Australia. And that's where we've been pushing the Treasurer Chalmers, Treasurer Chalmers to really step up an Australian 
response to the Inflation Reduction Act. The, President Biden is kicking goals. He's put America back in the race. America's building four times as much factories in the last 12 months as they've built in any year in the last 50, like wow. 400% faster construction of new capacity. So they're really saying, well, we don't want to be reliant on Chinese factories. We want to do it in our own country and have self-sufficiency or have at least alternative supply chains established so we don't just be left behind. And so there is the risk of a big sucking noise, which is the sucking of all of the brilliant capital in Australia off to America Mm. because Biden's thrown a trillion bucks of subsidies on the table. And last I checked, a trillion dollars is a lot of money, particularly when it's US dollars. And so our finances um, reminded Jim Chalmers that our borders, our capital borders are very, very porous and that they've got a fiduciary duty to invest where they can maximise the return and minimise the risk. So Australia does need a response, which is why I say, look, now that Chalmers has proven his economic credentials, like he's got an A+, plus, whereas Frydenberg got a D-, minus. Um, like Frydenberg's the guy that when he announced the COVID thing, he, he got it wrong by sort of $60 billion. Mm-hmm. Um, Chalmers is now rolling in cash and paying down debt. Um, but what we need to do is invest in the future. So I'm pushing and we and my organisation has worked with a whole lot of other organisations to say to the federal government, you really got to start investing in the solutions the world needs. And we know a carbon price is toxic, but it's the obvious solution put a price on the problem and finance and business will find a way around it in the absence of doing the obvious least cost solution they're going to have to do something else which means spending a bit of our money our taxpayers money and that's it's things like the capacity investment scheme underwrite and minimize the risk and then let them crowd in private capital in the hundreds of billions of dollars so our children will thank Chalmers for doing it when he does it. He's promised to do it in May next year in the budget. Um, we're pushing him to go hard and fast because this is a massive investment, employment, export opportunity. Oh, and by the way, it'll help save the planet. <laughs> oh, bonus. <laughs> yeah, just a, just a little bonus. Australia can play a world-leading role on that. Mm. We, we, we play number one. I think you and I have talked about it. We're number one in the world in... Iron ore, 38% of the world's iron ore. We're number one in the world in coke and coal. 55% of the world's coke and coal exports. We're number one in the world in lithium. 50% of the world. We don't play an also-ran role when it comes to the export market. And so that means we can play a world-leading role helping countries like China, Japan, Korea, India decarbonise their economy. We can help them. And when we're helping them, we're helping ourselves because we're building the industries of the future, just like China's doing. And that's that's a big investment, and that is a once in a generation opportunity for Chalmers to leave a massive positive economic legacy for our country. We've been a parasite on the world for for decades as the third largest fossil fuel exporter of the world. We're, we're one of the drug pushers. We've got to become one of the solution providers at world scale. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Tim, look, we could talk all day. We're going to have to wrap it up soon, though, but I just wanted to touch quickly on another thing that from this report which brought a smile to my face, and there's so many. Um, uh, Adani Exposed, History's Worst Corporate Fraudster. What, would you give us a couple of minutes on that? Yeah, I've been campaigning, and Mr Adani's not, um, not on my Christmas list, and I'm certainly not on his Um <laughs> Although he did offer to take me over to India and kiss and make up. And 
that, in all honesty, they did actually offer, and then they've just announced the reason why they did it, it was a month ago. Um, I, I politely declined, um, but they actually have done some of what they were offering to discuss with me. So they've announced this week, so you're expecting me to dump on them, okay, the biggest fraud in world history, allegedly, but what they've announced this week is that they're going to invest $100 billion into decarbonising the Indian economy over the next decade. Now, $100 billion bucks, in anyone's terms is a very significant bet to help drive capital to solutions that the world needs and we need india is now one of the four or five largest economies in the world it's growing the largest fastest growing large economy in the world it's growing at seven percent per annum like china's growing at five america's growing at two or three they're growing at seven percent gdp per annum so what Qatar um, Madani has announced this week is that five of his big subsidiaries will target net zero by 2050, um, which is 20 years ahead of what Prime Minister Modi has pledged for India as an emerging market. Now, common but differentiated responsibilities. We and China and America and Europe caused the problem. The vast majority of it, we've got to move first and to buy some time for emerging markets like India. Hmm. But and Prime Minister Modi's been sort of very dogged pointing out common but differentiated responsibilities as a core principle of the Paris Agreement. But Adani, like Mikesh Ambani, the, the richest man in Asia, the, the founder of Reliance Industries, who's Adani's number one competitor, the two of them have both committed to decarbonise their entire, well, sorry, their businesses, a majority of their businesses, um, decades ahead of the country pledge for India. So if Australia, if Bowen can convince America and Europe and China to pull forward our aspirations and go harder and the tripling of renewables globally by 2030 is exactly what we need, that pulls forward the decarbonisation. India is now positioning so that they can pull forward their net zero by 10, 20 or even 25 years. Now that means we do bank a livable future for our children so much as i've been a, a, a protagonist against guitar madani now that he is one of the richest men in the world he's starting to invest in solutions and we need him to go faster in the right direction and stop digging new coal mines so a bit like australia bowen's pushing us in the right direction but at the same time we're still building new coal-fired power plants and new, sorry new coal mines India is still building new coal mines and coal-fired power plants, and unfortunately, it's Qatar Madani doing that. But at the same time, he's now saying he's going to invest $100 bucks in decarbonisation solutions, which is building the grid, building the wind, building the solar, building, like he announced, they're, they're building India's biggest copper refinery. When you're building a huge amount of new grid transmission, you need a lot of copper, mm. and he's building the refinery to supply the raw materials that India needs to decarbonise their economy. So, sounds like a story to keep an eye on. Sounds like something for uh, for future uh, uh, analysis of the uh, the results of those pledges, eh? Absolutely, it's it's good. It's what we have to see. The robber barons have to start turning and start contributing back to their economies. And Adani's starting to turn the ship now. Early days, but. They are starting, and that's what we, we need everyone to mark in. History is history, but we've got to actually deliver the solutions the world needs, and they need them in India. 1.4 billion people need those solutions.
Don't we all? Absolutely. That's um, well, great to have you here again, Tim. Thanks so much for uh, bringing us all of this news. So much of it uh, very exciting, and uh, the, the possibilities are uh, uh, looking much more positive after having spoken to you. So, thank you for that. And uh, we'll have to get you back on again uh, sooner rather than later. But I hope you have a happy, uh, silly season, a good break, and peace and justice to you and yours and until we speak again. Brilliant. Thanks for having me, Sean. Have no a worries. great Christmas yourself. Yep. Cheerio. Bye. That was Tim Buckley from the Climate, Energy and Finance Think Tank uh, giving us a, a pretty good wrap-up of the year for, uh, for climate, energy and finance. So uh, thanks to him. Uh, sounds like there's a lot to be looking forward to in the new year with uh, some real positive uh, prospects for the transition to renewable prosperity and away from the fossil fuel uh, corruption that we have been uh, subject to up till, uh, well, up till now. We're going to go straight back into a Disrupt Borough Hub story from Maz, uh, who blocked uh, the, uh, the, the officers of the uh, gas regulator there in Perth this week, and also to the Tarkine Forest in Tasmania, where they're d- and also defending the swift parrots down there in Tassie, talking to uh, Scott Jordan from the uh, Bob Brown Foundation. You're tuned into Environmental as Anything. Thanks for being with me today. Scott Jordan from the Bob Brown Foundation is with me here today to talk to us about uh, the Tarkine forests and the community defence of it. Thanks for joining Environmental as Anything today, Scott. Uh, Thanks for having me. It looks like action has been going on in the Tarkine uh, again this week with five days of protests out there. Can you give us a, a summary of what's happened this week? Yeah, look, we've um, been monitoring a, a number of um, proposed logging coops across the Tarkine for a number of years, and we've been taking action to defend them when necessary. It's been about three years since we've seen them try and move on a, an area of, of rainforest in the Tarkine, um, largely because the community has, has repeatedly stood up and said, we won't, we won't stand by and watch this. And on Thursday afternoon last week, they started moving some machines in. And so um, the, the community have, have again decided that we're not willing to watch our, our amazing temperate rainforest being destroyed. And so um, on Sunday night, people moved in there. They established a tree sit and we set up in there and, and held the loggers out for two days before the police came in and um, moved people on and, and arrested the tree sitter. And every day since that local community has, has gathered together and they've been sending um, teams onto the site to shut down work. And so we've, I think we've had now six um, separate um, teams that have walked on and shut down work on that site, um, including an amazing young um, farmer by the name of Cade McKenzie who's um, went out there this morning and locked onto machines and um, was, was arrested late morning. And, um, you yeah, know, simply was was there to defend these forests and say we're not going to watch them being destroyed. So, yeah, a lot of us are a long way from the Tarkine in Tasmania. Can you tell us a bit about uh, that rainforest uh, there and, and why, it's, uh, why it's inducing such community outrage at the thought of it being destroyed? 
Yeah, well, look, the the Tarkine Wilderness in Tasmania is is an amazing place. Um, we we have Australia's largest remaining temperate rainforest, one of the last remaining temperate rainforests on the planet. Um, and Myuna is a little um, former um, farming uh, village on the north east uh, point of Tacoma. Uh, but it's um, it's an area that um, over many years has has seen a lot of the farms taken over by plantation um, expansion. But also, you know, we saw a lot of those remaining rainforests on that northern edge of of the Tarkine um, pushed pushed away um, to make way for plantations through the um, the last half a century, and so. This this area is is right at that that edge of the Tarkine. It's a, it's a area that's surrounded by plantations on three sides, and for that local community, it's a really precious place that they've been able to take their kids to growing up. They've experienced that that wild place, and they're seeing how little of it is left. And so, um, we've been talking with them quite a while. And earlier this year, they were sending. Um, Forestry Tasmania sent fern cutters in, so they were cutting down, you know, two, three, four hundred year old um, tree ferns and putting them in containers to send them uh, across to Europe to be sold as garden ornaments. And mm-hmm. so the community stood with us then and said, "We won't stand for this." And the fern cutters hightailed it out there, but but we received um, confirmation that they still planned to go ahead and log it. And last Thursday they started moving the machines in, and so. We put the call out to the community and said, hey, if, if you're prepared to defend this, we're going to stand there right with you. And um, uh, we've we've done that this week. And look, I can tell you the phone's still ringing hot and people are saying, um, we love what you're doing out there. This is our precious place. Um, we will be there. And so uh, for everything we've pulled off this week and slowing them down, I get the feeling we're only just starting. Well, that sounds uh, like good news if the community are uh, behind protecting the forest. Has there been any uh, positive movements from the Tasmanian government uh, towards ending native forest logging in Tassie? Look, we've we've had the usual response we expect from the government. I guess we're a little bit um, amused earlier in the week where the, the minister referred to us as professional protesters. Um, you know, I guess by professional, if he means... You know, well-trained, dedicated, passionate and effective, um, that would be a great way to describe this community for sure. Mm. And, um, you know, the minister can can um, engage in all the name-calling he wants, but these these people are amazing local heroes who are going to stand up for this, this wild place uh, where the minister has failed to. And so I, I just am... Um, amazed by the, the passion in this local community and I'm really proud to be out there standing with them. Mm-hmm. Look, just uh, just uh, out of interest, what, what, what are they logging it for? What's, what's, uh, what's being, being done with this uh, forest once it's been logged? Well, this particular area contains some um, eucalypt, um, but it's predominantly an area of um, blackwood, myrtle, all those... Um, slow-growing ancient rainforest, wet wet forest trees. And so most of what comes out of this coop will go straight to the wood chip mill. Um, the experience of similar areas is, is roughly around 60% of what is cut 
um, just simply doesn't doesn't leave the site at all. It's it's um, if it's not you know six to twelve metres long and and perfectly straight, it just doesn't doesn't lend itself to being put on a log truck at all. Mm. Um, so sixty percent just gets wasted right up front. And of what leaves there in a log truck, um, eighty to eighty five percent of that will go straight to the wood chip mill. Um, some will go off to um, become plywood and a very small amount, less than 5%, will actually become a sawn timber product. Mm. And so there is a huge amount of waste and, and destruction um, for the tiniest of um, productive gain out of this. And what we do know is that um, Forestry Tasmania, the, the State Government Logging Agency, trading as Sustainable Timbers Tasmania, if you can believe it, um, they they make a loss every year. And so the 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 grants that the state government is paying to Forestry Tasmania to log our native forests um, far exceed the the income that they gain from um, the logging. And so we're, we're essentially sending the majority of these forests um, straight into the atmosphere as, as carbon emissions um, from the forest waste that then burnt. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for, and wood chip that's um, being exported for use in packaging and and for electricity furnaces overseas, and so this is from a climate perspective, it is the absolute madness that we're doing this. Um, but we're also in a biodiversity crisis, and we know that our um, our temperate rainforests are really important habitat, and this this place particularly, being that it's a it's a remnant of what what used to be there. Yes. Uh, wow. What a what an extraordinary story of waste and uh, and and the courage of the community and the determination to try to stop it. Look, um, Scott, I I'm going to uh, sort of uh, ambush you a little bit because uh, I know you're you uh, you you're, you're specialising and working on the Tarkine campaign, but there's a lot of other things going on in Tassie. And while I've got you on the line, I thought I should ask you what you know about the swift parrot habitat, uh, ten kilometres from uh, Jeeveston. Uh, in Tasmania's south, and the uh, the injunction that's being uh, sought there. Yes, look, well, we've got news today that um, on on the coop that we were seeking the injunction on, um, Forestry Tasmania has has um, given the court a, an undertaking that it it's ceasing logging on that coop, and so an injunction wouldn't be necessary. Um, and so um, we we're claiming a a a small win on that. Um, what we do know, though, is that there are many more coops um, across those southern forests of Tasmania and, and along the east coast of Tasmania where swift parrot um, require those um, forests for nesting and, and for um, the hollows they use for you know, raising their young, uh, but they also require the, the flowering gums in those areas as that food source. And so... Tasmania is the only place in the world where swift parrot breed. They they fly down from their their summer um, from their winter um, periods on on mainland Australia, and they nest here in our forest in Tasmania, and and we are driving them to extinction. We know there is um, projected. Uh, numbers saying that they will be extinct within a decade. We know they're down to um, perhaps as low as 70 breeding pairs left. It is it is critical that we preserve these standing forests with mature um, habitat 
for this this amazing species. But we are we are seeing a government that is happy to pay lip service to to putting in plans to protect this species, but they're doing absolutely nothing to stop stop the loss of habitat. And our people have um, liked to having the tarquin have been out standing in those forests and shutting work down on those coops as they're happening, but. You know, I hate to say it, but we've been doing this for a number of years and the, the pattern of behaviour continues. Mm-hmm. Is that the same forest that uh, Bob Brown was arrested in and was giving evidence in court uh, almost two weeks ago? Uh, it's 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 down in that area, yeah. It's, there's a number of coops engaged and um, yeah, this, this particular one um, is... is really important this year what what will happen with the swift parrot is they will they will move around a number of areas each year and so we'll sometimes see them return to the same forest sometimes the the, the next valley will have a better flowering and so they'll move to that valley and so it's it's not simply a case of find the spot on the map where you saw them mm. last year and protect that bit they actually need a, a whole ecosystem to be able to move around where the the flowering gums are best able to support uh, that that breeding effort in that given year. Mm-hmm. Well, well, Scott, look, it sounds like a lot going on in Tassie, uh, as there is, of course, across the country. Uh, those of us who are listening from uh, far away, how how can we help out? Look, people people can get engaged. Um, they can certainly you know make their way to Tasmania and join us out there on the front lines. Um, whether it's the fight in the Tarkine or the fight in the in the forests in the south of the state to defend the swift parrot, we we need bodies on the ground um, and we and we need them urgently. Um, but if if you're not able to get down and, and join us on the front lines, you can certainly get onto our website and donate. Um, every dollar you're putting into our campaign helps protect those amazing species that we're out there fighting for. But also, um, write to your federal members of parliament, to your to your senators um, in the parliament, and tell them that the time for native forest logging is over. We we know that Victoria is moving out. Um, in, in a very short period of turning this year. Um, we know West Australia is moving out. South Australia has been long out. Our cousins across the ditch in New Zealand have, have been out. Thailand is already out. It's 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 well past time to end native forest logging and, and we all need to be telling our parliamentarians that, that time is up. We want this to end now. Couldn't agree more with you, Scott. Thanks so much for all your good work there and thanks for joining Environmental as Anything today to share it with us. Thank you. On Monday this week, a Disrupt Burrup Hub campaigner, Maz, chained himself to a concrete barrel on a four-wheel drive vehicle parked across both eastbound lanes of Mounts Bay Road in Perth CBD during the rush hour. Directly outside the office that the Federal Offshore Oil and Gas Regulator, NOPSEMA, shares with two companies developing major components of Woodside's Burrup Hub mega project, the Perdaman Fertiliser Company and Woodside's Northwest Shelf Holding Company. I'm very glad to have Maz on the line right now to let us know what he did that day and why. Maz, thanks for joining Environmental as Anything. Can you tell us what happened on Monday? Yeah, um, thanks for having me, Sean. Um, so on on Monday, I, as, as you say, um, parked a car uh, across two lanes of traffic. Um, this was the first arrestable 
um, protest I'd ever done. Um, and yeah, I, I suppose uh, on that on that Monday there was a lot of uh, nerves and tension beforehand, but uh, we'd we'd properly rehearsed it. So once everything was in place and it was go time, we were it was it was all pretty automatic. It was um, kind of reminded me of when you were in high school and you were doing the, the high school play and everything feels very nerve wracking and then you get out there and you do it. And then, um, there's a bit of relief at the end of it. Um, but yeah, as for how the action went, I think, um, this, this action, I should say is, is very much modeled on, um, a similar action that was done a couple of years ago, um, by, uh, one comrade of mine, Petrina Harley and, uh, some other, um, associates of hers whose names escaped me sorry um <laughs> never mind but they they were able to block uh Barrack road which is the road that leads um that leads to the Barrack hub itself and they were able to block that for about 16 hours which was a really impressive feat um <laughs> very uh disappointing because i was um because I was sort of uh, telling Petrina that I was going to beat her her record, but they got me off within an hour, pretty much. So I definitely had some work to do. Okay, so as a result of uh, these actions, what are the charges you're facing? What legal consequences uh, might you experience? Yeah, so I've got three charges, all minor. Um, the, the first one is basically a traffic offence, uh, which is... Uh, unreasonably obstructing or preventing the free passage uh, on a road. Um, and then I've also been charged with obstructing a public officer, um, which is due to me not telling them how I was locked into the barrel. Um, and then the final one is failure to, abort, to obey, a, uh, failure to obey a uh, move on order. So uh, funny thing about that is they actually gave me the move on order pretty much as I was about to be cut off because it's almost like they'd forgotten that that was part of the whole thing that they were meant to do. So, <laughs> tell us a bit more about the background of uh, of, of why sure. you were there. What's what's Burrup Hub? I mean, we're a long way uh, uh, over here, over east, and uh, uh, you know sometimes people might not even be aware of what's going on. But it's it's a massive project. So give us a bit of background yeah. on why you would. Lock yourself sure. on a, in a main street. Yeah, so the, the Barrett Hub is a collection of gas projects um, just outside of Carapa, which is about uh, 1500 k's north of Perth in WA. Um, it consists of four big projects. So two are currently operational, two are in development. Uh, one hasn't been approved yet. So the, the two in operation are the uh, Northwest Shell Gas Plant and Pluto LNG. Um, and then a couple of years ago, uh, Scarborough Gas was approved, uh, which is an offshore um, gas platform that Woodside have been uh, constructing since, I think, 2021 or 2020. Um, and then the last piece of that puzzle is ages away from the Barrett Hub, which is the, the Browse um gas field which um woodside are currently seeking approval for um, and if that's approved it would involve uh drilling or or exploitation of the gas fields uh right by scott reef which is a really important ecosystem breeding site for uh endangered marine turtles and dugongs um 
And I suppose the reason I was there on Monday morning was to do with a approval that NOPSEMA, the uh, federal oil and gas regulator, uh, had given to Woodside to commence um, seismic blasting as part of their um, Scarborough gas project. Uh, and seismic blasting is quite a devastating um, process. It involves a really loud um, noise that they, they use to detect uh, gas reserves, but in the process that can of course play havoc with um, marine mammals that use that so use sonar for uh, echolocation. So whales in particular pass through that area quite a bit. So yeah, that, that was the main reason why we were there was to um, firstly protest the decision by Noxima and secondly to really point out just how the, the fact that Noxima share their office with Perdaman who have a a fertilizer plant on uh, on the Barrett Hub as well, um, which in itself is is a hugely destructive thing to the uh, rock art in the area. Um, and then the uh, and the Northwest Shelf Holding Company was sharing that office as well. It, it just really highlights the level of um, enmeshment between the the oil and gas. Uh, companies and, and, and the fossil fuel industry in general and the federal regulators that are meant to oversee their actions. Right. Yeah, it does sound like a hand-in-glove operation if they're sharing the same uh, office space sure. or, or, or and, and, adjoining and, offices. Yeah, and, and the fact that there was a ship ready to go on the Friday evening that the decision was passed down is pretty extraordinary. You would think that if you had a, a court order saying that you can't start seismic blasting, you'd sort of park that idea for a while. Um, but they clearly knew that that approval was coming. So they had everything ready to, to go straight away. Mm-hmm. So uh, you, you're a veterinarian. Uh, and, uh, yeah. and, and so you, you work closely with animals, caring uh, for animals. What, what, how do you see that uh, connected with this uh, project? Yeah, I, I think... Um, I, I actually got a little bit of um, my, my friends and family were sort of questioning why we emphasize the, the veterinarian side of things, but it really does inform my personal um, drive towards that climate activism because um, the the fact is climate change is going to have a monumental impact on. Um, so in in the veterinary sphere, there's this idea of one health. I think it's a, just a general public health. Um, term, but the idea is health health for animals and health for the environment also drives human health. Mm. So climate change, of course, is going to just absolutely wreak havoc on that. Um, and yeah, I, I think uh, while, while I don't work with marine wildlife at all, of course, I see them as sentient animals who are capable of suffering, have their own um, subjective experience of the world and absolutely uh, they are deserving of us to fight for their um, fight for their existence as much as we're fighting for everyone's existence when we're we're um, fighting against the fossil fuel industry mm. yes it's uh, it's all one thing isn't it so there's yeah. Uh, yeah animal health and human health and all the health of the environment as you say yeah and the Barrett Hub, one thing I've got to mention in that summary, um, is built on 
um, a really important uh, First Nations rock art site. Mm -hmm. um, and, and when I say a rock art site, we're not just talking about one or two pieces, we're talking about um, thousands of examples. Um, and these, these rock art, um, sorry, this rock art can stretch back the earliest um, pieces are thought to be from over 45,000 years ago, possibly about 50,000 years ago. It's described here as the uh, the largest, oldest collection of Aboriginal rock art in the world, uh, yeah. currently nominated for UNESCO World Heritage Listing. Yeah, except when they cocked up the application and put that back a couple of years. But anyway, yeah, they it, it, is, um, it is meant to be nominated for um, World Heritage Listing. So, yeah, it's an absolute... Um, travesty on multiple levels and and i have to say when you see it because i was lucky enough to go up there a couple of weeks back under um police supervision i should say um but yes when when we were there and you're in this space i'm not really much of a um spiritual person i suppose you would say but you definitely feel an aura to it and there's there's an aura that you're looking at this rock art that's existed there for millennia and while you're experiencing this amazing piece of art um and you just think that there should be this sense of peace and calm that's coming over you and all you can hear is the hissing and the grinding of the machinery in the background and you turn around and it's as the gas pipe is literally right there mm. it's it's just completely gross and i have to have to say um because perdaman sort of gets off lightly in the barrett pub discussion but when you're Driving down to the rock art, Perdamon is the closest thing. And as they're developing it, they've got excavators and stuff just absolutely tearing up country um, as, as part of their construction of it. So, yeah, uh, um, a lot of people aren't sure what Perdamon have to do with it. They are, they are deeply enmeshed in the whole thing. The community seems to have been very active around this. There have been multiple people arrested in various different ways of trying to publicise the uh, the facts. The, uh, the 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 WA terrorist police have uh, uh, have been uh, invoked to uh, to stop a, a non-violent action outside uh, uh, the uh, the the CEO uh, uh, Meg O'Neill, isn't it? Uh, mm -hmm. Her house in in Perth. So lots mm -hmm. of uh, community action so far. What what could people over this far away from uh, from you? What could we do here to help? Yeah. So uh, Disrupt Barrett Pub does have some uh, small groups that are starting up in the eastern states. So I think if you want to get involved directly, the uh, first thing you can do is hop on our social media and sign up for the next public meeting. Um, we are running regular public meetings online that you can join in on, where we'll tell you a little bit more information, get your perspective and see what you can do to help. Um, there will definitely be scope for actions over east or, or for people over east to come over and, and do actions as well. Um, if you're not in the position to do an action, and I understand that some people might look at what I did as a bit crazy and silly, um, then but you still want to help, then uh, the next thing you can do is donate. We have a, um, a, chuffed, uh, a chuffed donation drive that we're trying to get as much money together. Obviously, this uh, campaign uh, will get quite a lot of um, police attention and fines that we need to pay for. And then there's also just buying equipment and things like that for our actions. So any money that you can spare would, would definitely be 
um, appreciated. And then I think finally, um, if you see, if you follow our stuff on social media, boost it, um, tell everyone about the Barrett Pub that you, you think would be interested or will hear you because it's the biggest gas project in Australia. It's four times as many carbon emissions over the next 50 years as the Adani coal station. It's, it's huge. Um, it might be localized in WA, but it's an Australia wide problem. Mm -hmm. Um, the fact is we, you know, we, we can't get any talk of net zero or, um, keeping, keeping Australia's emissions down is just absolutely blown apart by this project. So yeah, we, we need to stop it. And, and I think, you know, we, we're going to stop it one way or the other. Well, Maz, look, you've done a, a, a brave thing there in, uh, in in the streets of Perth. And thank you for your efforts and thank you for sparing the time. I know you're getting ready to go to work this morning, so uh, I should let you go. Um, uh, thanks for, for calling back and speaking to Environmental as anything today. Yeah, cool. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me. That was Disrupt Burrup Hub campaigner Maz joining us here on Environmental as anything to talk about his action on Monday, the 11th of December when he locked onto a car outside the offices of the Federal Offshore Oil and Gas Regulator, NOPSEMA, in Perth, to protest against the Woodside's Northwest Shelf Gas Project at Burrup Hub. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Environmental As Anything podcast. Uh, I'll be bringing them to you as regularly as I can. If you'd like to tune in to more of this kind of uh, material, uh, there's plenty of episodes available. You can subscribe to our podcast, and while you're there, you might as well rate it and help uh, spread the word by sharing it on social media if you can. We're on social media, of course, on Facebook particularly. You can find us anywhere you look for environmental as anything. And if you're really keen to see the show carry on, please do go and support us on Patreon. Again, you can find us by just searching environmental as anything Patreon. Thank you for your support. Be gentle with yourselves. Be kind to each other. And remember, we are all in this together. Uh -huh.